particularly want to welcome you if you're a guest with us. Really glad to be able to celebrate this time together. We have been looking at the book of Mark. We looked at the first half of Mark in the fall and have been taking the second half, chapters 9 through 16, this spring. Mark is one of the four biographies of Jesus, and we believe Mark's account to be true and historically accurate. We can even see evidence in Mark 16 in our passage today where Mark goes into specific detail by giving particular names, names of women that witness the resurrection. Another thing that would corroborate the reliability of the account that we have in Scripture. Culturally speaking, in the first century, unfortunately, a woman's testimony publicly was not considered to be taken with validity. So why in the world, if someone was fabricating a story, would you have women be the first ones to the tomb to be able to be eyewitness accounts to the resurrection if it was not actually indeed true? We believe the Bible to be the Word of God, and we believe the Bible to be transformative. One person said it like this, the Bible, banned, burned, beloved, more widely read, more frequently attacked than any other book in history. Generations of intellectuals have attempted to discredit it. Dictators of every age have outlawed it and executed those who read it. Yet soldiers carry it into battle, believing it more powerful than their weapons. Fragments of it smuggled into solitary prison cells have transformed ruthless killers into gentle saints. Pieced together scraps of scripture have converted whole villages of pagan Indians. Simply stated, the Bible is the word of God and it's historically accurate. It's the most well-attested document throughout the ancient history of the world. If you were to compare the Bible, for example, to the works of Homer or Plato, it's incomparable in its reliability. It's something that we can trust because it's God's word, because it's historically reliable. And therefore, this morning, when we look at this account of the resurrection, we believe the resurrection to be true. We believe the resurrection to be true because we know the tomb was empty. We believe the resurrection to be true because we know, and it's verified even outside of Scripture, that there's eyewitness accounts to the resurrected Jesus. Paul mentions the resurrected Jesus five times. The resurrected Jesus is mentioned seven times in the four Gospels. At one point, Paul mentions Jesus as a resurrected Savior being with and appearing to over 500 people. And then the book of Acts tells us that Jesus walked the earth for 40 days prior to ascending into heaven. The Bible is true and the resurrection is true. Don't you want it to be? Don't you want the resurrection to be true? Don't you want death to be delivered from? To not have sting? To receive life? Out of death, Jeff Tweedy, a great lyricist and the lead singer of the band Wilco, says this, All my lies are always wishes. I know I would die if I could come back new. All my lies are always wishes. I know I would die if I could come back new. The resurrection is not a lie. It's not a wish. It's a guaranteed promise that we will come back new. But it's completely understandable if we have a hard time believing that, whether you're inside or outside the boundary of Christianity. 
If you have a hard time believing this, whether you're a Christian or not, you're in good company. Why? Because there were no disciples on the third day at the tomb of Jesus. Even though Jesus had told them repeatedly that he would die and rise again on the third day. Even the disciples in Jesus' time did not expect or believe in the resurrection. But thankfully, we can cling to the reality and the hope of the resurrection. It's not dependent on our belief. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 16 this morning. Last week, we looked at the end. This week, we look at the beginning. Mark 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for the trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me be seated once again. In mid-January of this year, there was a volcanic eruption in Tonga. This volcanic eruption destroyed all the neighboring islands around Tonga and sent what scientists call a super spectacular shockwave that circled the earth for days. They said that it was a once-in-a-century event that scientists would marvel at and study for years and years to come. Well, over 2,000 years ago, there was another eruption. It was an eruption of a crucified man named Jesus Christ who was put to death on a cross and three days later was raised again. And the shockwave from that event continues to reverberate and circle the entire earth, even today. That's why we're here this morning. That's why millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people have and are and will gather around the world because the shockwave of the resurrection is the greatest story ever told because it's true and it's real. And as a result of that, it is worthy to be celebrated holistically with everything within us, with all that we have. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, the former bishop of Durham, laments to some degree that modern Christians seem to have some of our holidays mixed up a bit. He essentially says Easter somehow kind of gets the shaft in that we do celebrate it, but we only celebrate it for one day. It's almost as if 
We give more attention to the 40 days prior to Easter than we do to the resurrection day of Easter, and clearly modern day, at least in the Western world. We give so much more credence to Christmas than we do to Easter. N.T. Wright says this about Easter. You might have heard this before. Easter ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before with lots of hallelujahs and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do so with exuberance in our liturgies? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one-day happy ending tacked onto 40 days of gloom? We should be taking steps to celebrate Easter in creative ways. In art, literature, children's games, poetry, music, dance, festivals, bells, special concerts, anything that comes to mind. It's one of the reasons that we put a prominence on seeking to make things more beautiful here on Easter Sunday morning, as you can see evidence of. It's one of the reasons that we like to designate a particular and a special wine for communion, because it's a way to commemorate the feast and the celebration, to make it distinctive from other days. We're seeking to take to heart what N.T. Wright is exhorting us to. He says, this is our greatest festival. Take Christmas away, and in biblical terms, you lose two chapters at the front of Matthew and Luke, nothing else. Take Easter away, and you don't have a New Testament. In fact, he goes on to say, you don't have Christianity. This is the day. This is what it's all about. This is the central axis through which everything turns, not only in the Christian faith, but for humanity, for the world, and for us personally. The main thing I want us to reflect on today from Mark chapter 16 simply is the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. It's a cosmic event with deeply personal ramifications. The resurrection changes things infinitely and imminently. The resurrection changes things on a macro level. The resurrection changes things on a micro level. The resurrection is the evidence of renewal, recreation, restoration, and redemption. The resurrection is taking things and working all things that are wrong and making them right. The resurrection changes everything. It's the greatest narrative ever told. It's the greatest narrative that precedes all the other great narratives, and it's the narrative that people keep trying to tell over and over and over again, whether they're doing it from an explicitly Christian perspective or worldview or not. Most aren't. But the greatest stories of our time, take Harry Potter, has a story of betrayal and loss and death and hope and redemption and life. Even most recently, The Queen's Gambit, so dark, yet ends with a degree of redemption and restoration. Then, and of course, the great British 
stories that are also some of the greatest narratives ever told. And these were actually written from people that understood the truth and the power of the gospel and the resurrection when we think about Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia from Tolkien and Lewis. These are all resurrection stories. Why? Because it's the narrative. It's the meta-narrative. Over all other narratives, it changes everything. I want us to look at it in a little more detail on two levels. It changes everything for us personally, and it changes everything for the world universally. Let's look at how it changes everything for us personally, and I'd like to do so by taking the names that are mentioned in the Mark 16 account. It changed everything for these women who were seeking to go care for the body of Jesus, maybe potentially at least showing an inkling of expectation that Jesus might actually rise, unlike the disciples, the men in this situation, aren't shedding good light on themselves or us. But the women are there to bring spices, not so much because they thought Jesus' body wouldn't be there, of course, but because they thought Jesus' body would be there. And so there was this sense in this air of hopelessness. In fact, Luke, in his account of this narrative, speaks about the women talking to Jesus, not knowing that it is Jesus himself. And the women in Luke 24 say, we had hoped. He was the one that was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was going to change everything. We had hoped he was going to personally redeem and renew us in all things. We had hoped. There was an air, an atmosphere of hopelessness. You know who else specifically had an air and an atmosphere and an experience of hopelessness? Arguably, Jesus' closest friend, Peter. You want to talk about ending your life well or not? In Jesus' most critical hour, in the upper room, Peter lies to him by telling him that he will not deny him. Peter falls asleep on him in the garden of Gethsemane three times. And then as Jesus is being trialed and crucified, Peter is asked three times if he knows Jesus, ending the last denial with an emphatic and potentially explicit denial. I have no idea who you're talking about. And then Jesus dies. The lack of reconciliation in relationships is one of the most bitter pills to swallow imaginable. The guilt and the pollution, the residue that we talked about on Maundy Thursday, is laying heavily, thick, on Peter's mind. Peter, after this, no doubt woke up with what some would refer to as a moral hangover. And so can you imagine what it must have been like for these women to hear from this messenger of God in the tomb, for them to go and say, hey, tell everybody that the resurrection changes everything. Go tell the disciples that the resurrection changes everything. Go tell the disciples and... Peter, there's the gospel in two words, and Peter. 
Why? Because Peter probably needed to hear it worse than anybody else. Because Peter was a sinner and Peter was a denier. And guess what? We're Peter. I know it's hard for us to see that. I'm amused by a recent AT&T commercial with Charles Barkley. I find him pretty amusing in a number of ways. And of course, his golf swing is amusing. And that's one of the things that's been highlighted on these AT&T commercials. And you see Charles Barkley with the Admiral, David Robinson, great center from the San Antonio Spurs from the Naval Academy, sitting there doing this virtual golf game together, kind of a shot tracker. And Barkley is, you know, doing his swing, and he sees it portrayed on the video screen in front of him, and he says, that's not me. That can't be me. And, of course, what he's saying is, there's no way I'm that bad. And as soon as he's literally saying, that's not me, on the screen you see him saying, and then he concludes, that's me. It's hard for us to admit that this is us. But the resurrection won't mean anything to us if we're unwilling to admit that we are Peter, that we are deniers, we are sinners, we are not the way we're supposed to be. If you don't understand that and you don't believe that, then what's the resurrection about? Resurrected from what? If you're not dead, what difference does the resurrection make? But if you are dead, if you are a denier, if you are a sinner, the resurrection changes everything personally. I was encouraged by reading an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal this week. You know, this time of year, there tends to be more proliferation of writings about spiritual things. This was from Mike Kerrigan, who's an attorney in Charlotte, who's a Christian that writes occasionally for the Wall Street Journal. And he was talking about recently having done more studies on the ancient saints, and particularly ones who were martyred, and basically starting... He said it's been a pretty discouraging study, actually, making his own faith seem pretty minuscule as he reads about these glorious saints of old. But then he said, but I find great encouragement with one saint referred to as Saint Demas, Dismas. He's the good thief on the cross. And as the writer of the op-ed says, when I look at my own life, which is full of failures and denials and sin, it just doesn't seem to really measure up against these saints. But when I look at the thief on the cross, it makes me think that there's hope for anybody. If you believe that you're saved by works, then tell me how Jesus told this thief, that today he would be with him in paradise moments before he dies. The resurrection changes everything for us personally, but the resurrection also changes everything for the world universally. Jesus, or we read that Jesus in Mark 16 is going before you to Galilee, and, and this is a small detail, but I don't want to miss it. 
there you will see him just as he told you. Why? Because the resurrection is a holistic testimony that all things will be made new. The resurrection will make all things new spiritually. But it will also make all things new physically. All things new emotionally. All things new relationally. Not all new things, but all things new. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says, Some say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Now, knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even the agony into glory. The prophet Joel talks about restoring all the years that the locust has eaten. He's making all things new for the world. Creation groans. We groan. And because of the resurrection, Jesus is already truly, though not yet fully, making all things new. And this changes everything. Tim Keller, whose name you've heard me mention before, if you're in this church, been very influential for me personally and in some foundational aspects of this church, was a pastor in New York City, Redeemer, still lives in New York and runs a global church planning network, among other things, and has terminal cancer. And was interviewed by an Anglican priest last week in the New York Times named Tish Warren and speaks about how at this point in his life, the resurrection means more to him than it ever has before. He says, Holy Week gives you both death and resurrection. They don't make any sense apart. You can't have the joy of the resurrection unless you've gone through a death. A death without resurrection is just hopeless. Essentially, the death-resurrection motif or pattern is absolutely at the heart of what it means to live a Christian life. And actually, everything in life is like that. With any kind of suffering, if I respond to it by looking to God in faith, suffering drives me like a nail deeper into God's love, which is what cancer has done for me. I do think that the great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole lot more. Because I look at Easter and I say, because of this, I can face anything. In the past, I thought of Easter as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see that Easter is a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear, any anger, any despair. I see it more powerful than ever before. The hope of the resurrection changes everything for us personally, and it changes everything for the world universally because it's a universal solvent. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, all things will be new. I enjoyed reading from a woman that many of you would be familiar with, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's a quadriplegic, 17 years old, was living a great normal life as a teenager, took a dive into the Chesapeake Bay in water that she misjudged was too shallow and has spent the remainder of her life in a wheelchair. 
And this is what she says about the resurrection. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to anyone? It makes all sad things come untrue. It's the universal solvent. It changes everything. That's why, in conclusion, we read at the conclusion of the Scriptures in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have personally and universally. We thank you for the solvent of the gospel in our own lives and the wounds that we carry right now. And we thank you and pray for the solvent of the gospel and the resurrection to be spread throughout the world in a universal way. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bring this manifest in our lives and in our world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.